0: Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. Today's message is titled, I Am Accepted. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, in the past 10 to 15 years, a new type of crime has crept its way into the American vernacular, Uh, identity theft is now the fastest growing crime in the country. Uh, Recent statistics estimate that someone becomes a victim of identity fraud every two minutes. In fact, some of you here today maybe have experienced that. Uh, Identity theft is simply stealing someone's likeness and personal information for fraudulent financial gain. That's the official definition. Uh, It typically includes lifting social security numbers, driver's license numbers, credit card numbers, and so on and so forth, so that the thief can impersonate us in order to open new accounts and obtain merchandise and services in our name, where we pay for it. Many in our country are learning that identity thieves are no respecters of age, marital status, ethnic background or income level. Take, for example, Mr. Richard Overton. Last year, Overton, uh, who was the oldest living American at 112 years old at the time, he was the victim of identity fraud when his bank account was emptied by an identity thief. The heist first was discovered when his cousin took a deposit to the local bank to deposit into his, uh, to Richard's uh, checking account. And when a receipt for the deposit was given by the teller to the cousin, the cousin realized that the balance on the receipt only showed what was deposited. Well, upon further investigation and looking at a history of transactions on the account, it was revealed that there were several unauthorized withdrawals. Overton lives in the same East Texas Sorry, East Austin, Texas town that um, he built a house in 72 years ago. And he had become somewhat of a local celebrity in 2013 when he received a reward, or an award, excuse me, from President Obama for serving in the South Pacific during World War II. It's believed that the identity thief got Overton's name from all the media coverage surrounding the time where he met the president. The culprit set up a fake bank account with Overton's social security number, accessed his checking account, and then purchased several savings bonds. More on Mr. Overton's story later, but there's another type of identity theft that is robbing the Lord's church. I call it spiritual identity theft. Spiritual identity theft happens when believers allow the world to define their identity instead of Christ. Spiritual identity theft is, at least in part, what causes Christian teenagers to be more concerned about fitting in at school than standing out for Jesus. It's what causes Christian singles to feel like they won't be significant in the church until they have a spouse. Spiritual identity theft is what causes Christian widows and widowers to feel insignificant after they lose a spouse, as though they can't do anything more for the church or they're not important to the church. It's what causes Christian women to be more concerned about their external appearance than the internal condition of their heart and Developing a gentle and quiet spirit, as the New Testament says. Spiritual identity theft causes men to find their value in their line of work, their title, their income, or what they can accomplish in life. It also causes athletes to use performance-enhancing drugs because their entire life purpose is wrapped up in what they can do on the playing field or the court. These are just some of the reasons why having an identity in Christ is so important. And having that locked down and understood clearly, if you're a Christ follower, is so relevant today. And so I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Ephesians chapter 1 and take out the sermon notes if you haven't already. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and we can loan one to you. We've got several on hand. Ephesians chapter 1, our big idea for today is this, this is what I hope you take away from our time together, and it is that Jesus offers an acceptance the world never has and never will. That's important, and I'm going to unpack that for, for you here in our time together. Jesus offers an acceptance the world never has and never will. He offers it, but not everyone receives it. Or believes it. It's my prayer that this message will uncover truths that are unforgettable for those who already know the Lord and irresistible for those who do not know Him yet. God's Word says that if you know His Son, you are unconditionally accepted. Uh, This unchanging truth should radically change uh, the way you live and I live. And if you don't know Jesus yet, making him your Lord and Savior can change your life. Just like it did mine back in 1991, as I alluded to earlier. And so with that, uh, I want to share three truths with you this morning about having an identity in Christ. And the first one comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to do something that's uncommon. I'm going to extract some truth out of one of Paul's greetings. It's a hidden truth, I think, that's often overlooked in how he begins his letter to the church in Ephesus. And so, if you look at the text, he says, uh, Paul, announcing who he is as he writes to the Ephesians, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the first truth that uh, we can glean today from the New Testament about having an identity in Christ, and that is that in Christ, I get to be an example. In Christ, I get to be an example. And I'm being very, very intentional here with my choice of words, because first of all, it only comes in Christ, so you need to know Jesus. And secondly, the get to. It's a privilege. Just like we we said uh, when we were starting Vanguard, our our launch team, uh, we kind of had a motto in the final weeks leading up to launches. We get to start a church. It's a privilege to do it for the Lord. Paul uses the word saints there in verse 1. You see it there in your Bible. You might want to underline it or highlight it. He uses the title saints to greet the churches that he wrote uh, to when he wrote to Rome, the churches in Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, and Colossae. He calls them saints in his greeting. He also used this term when closing his letter to the Philippians. Saints. It comes from the Greek word that literally means holy ones, or to set aside for holy use. Now, the dictionary defines a saint as this, uh, someone chosen by God to be an example of holy living. A saint is someone chosen by God to be an example of holy living. So why does Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, call the believers in these churches saints? Well, I think there's a reason why. And here it is. God calls us who we are, so we will become what he calls us. God calls us who we are, so we will become what he calls us. The Lord knows that people tend to become what they are called prison evangelist Bill Glass uh, saw this truth confirmed uh, one time when he was uh, preaching at a prison and, uh, to a thousand prisoners. And during his message, he asked the, 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 the prisoners there, how many of you had parents who told you that you would end up in prison one day? And sadly, just about every prisoner raised his hand. We have a way, sadly, of sort of fulfilling the destiny that is put upon us, or that others speak about us. Now, with each major point in your outline today, I'm going to give you an implication and a specific life application, because I want to do as best as I possibly can to draw a line from the biblical truth, which some of, some of it is sort of heavy doctrine, it's kind of heady theological stuff, I want to draw a line from that to the implication and then to the application as best I possibly can. So, an implication is a conclusion that could be made, although it's not implicitly, or sorry, explicitly stated. I'll say that again. <laughs> an implication is a conclusion that can be made from something that's not explicitly stated. So what's the implication here? Well, it's this. In Christ, we can show the world a better life. You see, if Paul calls us saints, and saints are chosen by God to be an example of holy living, then that means he's called us to set an example for the world on how to live. Very few people have demonstrated the power of living a godly life better than the influential 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards. At one time, 1,394 descendants were identified and studied from Jonathan Edwards. Researchers found that 100 of his descendants became preachers and missionaries, 100 became lawyers. 80 were public officials, 75 became army and navy officers, 65 were college professionals, 60 became authors of prominence, 60 more became physicians, 30 were judges, 13 were college presidents, 3 became United States senators, 1 became vice president of the United States, and the remaining 295 were college graduates, among whom were governors and ministers to foreign countries all traced back to the godly life of Jonathan Edwards. So what's the application? Application answers the question, what must I do now that I've heard this? And I share applications every Sunday because I want to condition you to never, ever open God's Word and then close it without something you need to work on or stop doing or start doing. Because God's word was written to transform us, not to inform us only. And so you should always walk away from God's word going, okay, I, I know something more about who I am or who He is or what He wants me to do because He's called me to apply His word, to be a doer of it. So the application, I think, is this we should pursue holiness with joy. We should pursue holiness with joy, not, not as a burden. You see, the world tries to tell us that living a holy life, man, you're missing out. It's no fun, is it? But God's word says the exact opposite. Living a holy life is a better life. People who who pursue holiness don't have as much shame and guilt for their sin because they don't sin as much. People who pursue holiness generally have healthier marriages better behaved kids, healthier finances, and on and on and on. Because they're applying and learning God's word, which gives direction on all areas of life. And being holy means being different from the world, and it means being an example for them. So being unconditionally accepted in Christ does not mean we can stay the same until Jesus comes back. Instead, Christ followers are called to be saints. Therefore, believers shouldn't be following the world's lead on how to live. Instead, we should be leading the world on how to follow Christ. They, they, They should be looking to us, and we should influence them. We've been called to stand out, to be different. Saints inspire people. Saints give people hope. Saints are used by God to change lives. Saints have powerful legacies that they leave behind. That's why being an example for the world to see is more of a privilege than it is a burden. I tell my kids this often, and sometimes they say, I don't want to be an example. And I say, well, you're missing out, because being an example is a privilege it's an opportunity to be used by God to influence other lives and that's a good thing jesus offers an acceptance the world never has and never will and part of that acceptance is the privilege of being an example next if you would turn your bibles to first corinthians chapter 6 first corinthians chapter 6 just turn back a few pages 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 18 to 20. Paul writes to the Corinthians, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Here's uh, number two in your outline. In Christ, in a relationship with Christ, I become valuable. I become valuable. Now allow me to give you a little context here. Paul's writing uh, to the church in Corinth, Greece. It was... At that time in the first century, what some scholars would call Las Vegas, it was sin city. It was uh, uh, in first century Greek culture, prostitution and homosexuality were legal and widely practiced in the city. Unfortunately, this sinful thinking was infiltrating the church. Uh, For example, babies were abandoned by their slave parents and then raised by pimps to be money-making prostitutes in Corinth. These prostitutes would then get saved, start coming to church, but still practice their craft Monday through Friday to earn a living. Other members of the church had been saved, but they were unwilling to give up the sinful lifestyle of paying prostitutes for pleasure. And so Paul was trying to explain to the Corinthians, and you probably have heard me say before, uh, there's a reason why the church in Corinth has not only the longest letter that's written in the New Testament to it, it also has two letters. And that's only two that made the canon of Scripture. Most theologians believe four in total were written to the church in Corinth. If that doesn't give you some sense of how much help they needed to get healthy as a church, okay? So, uh, a lot of issues going on there that Paul was trying to help them with. Now, uh, Paul was trying to explain why Christ followers cannot continue doing with their bodies what they used to do before they knew Christ. And so he says in verse 19, and I'm sure you're familiar with the verse, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Meaning that if, if you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior you have the presence of the living God within you in the form of the Holy Spirit. That means that wherever you go, he goes. Whatever you do, he does with you. We cannot ignore the the physical because the physical is connected to the spiritual in the Scriptures. Uh, Instead, we need to see the connection between the physical and the spiritual. and That means our souls are not the only thing being saved and sanctified. In fact, very few believers know this, and that is that the Lord saves our bodies as well as our souls. Our bodies are going to be resurrected someday. And so that's one of the reasons why Paul says, take care of your body. Uh, and he says, you are not your own. Notice in the text, verse 19. Contrary to what the world tells us, this is my body, I've got rights, nobody can tell me what to do. Well, that all changes when you become a Christ follower. Because now what Paul's saying is, no, it's not your body anymore. Your soul and your body was purchased from the slave market of sin with the blood of Jesus Christ. It becomes His. This is a game changer because it means that we are no longer owners of our bodies, but instead stewards. We manage our bodies now for the Lord. This is made even more clear in verse 20, where Paul says, You were bought with a price. That is a financial term, no doubt. The price, though, that was paid, as I mentioned earlier, was the currency of Christ's blood. Paul uses slave market language here to help the Corinthians understand the significance of Jesus' sacrifice. For them, You see, it was common back then for uh, landowners and business owners to go downtown to a slave market where slaves were on display, and they would bid on certain slaves and buy the slave. That owner or that property owner, that farmer, would then own the slave until they died or until the slave was sold to somebody else. And so Paul's using that language and that that word picture to say, hey, before Christ, Corinthians, you were slaves to sin. You were in bondage, and sin owned you. But now, Jesus bought you from the slave market of sin, and he now owns you, and he's the best owner you could ever have. Because he set you free to become all that he wants you to be. Jesus wanted so badly to rescue repentant sinners from the slave market of sin that he paid for our redemption with the most expensive currency ever, his blood. His blood. So what's the implication? Well, in Christ, our value is not determined by external factors. In Christ, our value is not determined by external factors, regardless of whether the world labels you cute or uncute, poor or wealthy, popular or unknown, young or old, smart or dumb, successful or unsuccessful, short or, shall I say, vertically challenged, athletic or, shall I say, velocity challenged. Um, All that matters is what Jesus says about you. And he says, you are important to him. What makes this even better news is that even though your waistline may change, your hairline may change, and the finish line may move on you, what Jesus says about you will never change. He doesn't change his mind. He's not fickle like humans are. He doesn't give in to pressure from the world. He doesn't evolve with the times. He stays the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Now, although glorifying God with our bodies, I think, is the primary application of this text, I think there's a secondary application that's hidden in the price Jesus paid for our redemption that we should not overlook. So here's, here's the application I want us to pull out today, and that is we should strive to please the Lord instead of people. We should strive to please the Lord instead of people. And I've given you 2 Corinthians 5.9 as a reference. That's where Paul sort of gives the motto for the Christian life later to the, in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says we should make it our aim to please him, not people. So if pleasing the Lord clashes with pleasing people, we should choose the Lord every time. And it will clash. It's going to happen often. Now, one of the many things, though, I've observed about people during my time on this earth and my time in ministry is that we crave acceptance from people so much that we'll do things that don't please the Lord or Lord, in order to please people who eventually will withdraw their acceptance anyway. And what's even sadder is we all do it in areas of our life that it, it's so ingrained in us, we don't even realize we do it. We're blind to it. And the Lord, wants, he wants to set us free from that. We crave acceptance from people so much, we'll do things that don't please the Lord in order to please people who will eventually withdraw their acceptance anyway. When we're no longer any value to them, or they don't like us anymore, or they're just in a bad mood. I think this is why my college pastor used to always tell me and there's just a handful of quotes that stuck in my noggin that he would say to me uh, and he, he loved to use funny voices. He'd, he'd say, "Senac, God is faithful but people are fickle. <laughs> he always used to say that to me. God is faithful but people are fickle. That wasn't his normal voice but um, he did it, I think, to help me remember it. So that's, if, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior... Why would you want to spend your life trying to gain acceptance from people when Jesus has already given you his? That's the question that leaps off the page from verse 20. You were bought with a price. You are valuable now. So instead, redemption through Jesus Christ frees us from the bondage of pleasing people so we can be freed up to please Him. And if I might say so myself, pleasing Him is easier than pleasing people. Because pleasing Him is written down in His Word, and it doesn't change from day to day or week to week. I have everything I need to, on how to please the Lord right here. If I just do this with his help, by his grace and with the power of his spirit, I'm good. And he's not going to take away anything or go, no, I'm going to change that. I decided I don't, I don't want you to be like that anymore because the world's changing. And I should change with the world. The Lord doesn't do that. It's written down. So Jesus offers an acceptance the world never has and never will. Next, if you would turn back a few more pages to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, Romans has been called by some theologians the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. It's heavy in doctrine, it is uh, filled with all sorts of truth proving and arguing for the Christian faith, and one of the more popular chapters in Romans is Romans 5 because Paul introduces the doctrine of justification. So in verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So here's a third truth about identity, on your outline that I think we can glean from Romans 5.1 that is that in Christ in Christ I am acquitted I am acquitted now I think the last time I preached this a few years ago I had justified but I decided to change it because I don't think that, that word communicates exactly what Paul's saying here let me explain If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are acquitted of your crimes committed against God. Here's what that means. In verse 1, Paul says, we have been justified by faith. The apostle uses a Greek word that means to acquit, to declare righteous, to justify, or to put into a right relationship with God. Or let me give you a more simple definition of justification. Justification is this. It's God declaring the guilty sinner righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, every word in that definition has been chosen intentionally. God does the declaring. The sinner, though, is still guilty. And the sinner gets righteousness through faith in Christ. There's no other way. It cannot be earned. You can't be good enough. You can't give enough to the church. You can't volunteer enough to get this righteousness. It comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it is impossible to overstate the doctrine of justification as it is taught in the scriptures. Being justified through faith in Christ means that even though all the evidence in the courtroom proves that we are guilty, Of many sins God as the judge declares us righteous through faith in his son Jesus Christ there's there's important clarification I need to make here though because the adversary is always working in our minds to try and twist truth and make us misunderstand things to be declared righteous to be justified it does not mean there was a lack of sufficient evidence doesn't mean that. It, it doesn't mean that the judge unfairly targeted us or profiled us because of our race or gender or income or where we're from. And, and it doesn't mean that witnesses were coerced to falsely testify against us like it was some mobster movie. Doesn't mean that. The doctrine of justification clearly teaches in the scriptures that there is no question of our guilt. There's no question of our guilt in God's court, and we clearly deserve the death penalty. However, those who have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ get Christ's righteousness in exchange for him taking on our guilt and our death penalty. So, implication. What what is the conclusion that we can draw that's not explicitly stated here? Well, in Christ, we don't have to justify ourselves when we sin or make mistakes. In Christ, we don't have to justify ourselves when we sin or make mistakes this is a this is a sniper's bullet aimed right at the defensiveness most of us portray when somebody points out that we were wrong or that we sinned and we go "Ah, well I wouldn't have done that if you wouldn't have done that or and we always say it in that voice too um, Oh, yeah, will you? It means you have been freed from the burden of being perfect. Jesus has already provided perfection for you. I wonder how many people listening to this message today or maybe online need to hear that. You don't have to be perfect anymore. You see, when you've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, you don't have to defend your imperfection by saying in a snarky voice, "Well, nobody's perfect. Which is, if you really think about it, it's a silly argument to justify whatever you just did. Instead, being justified by faith in Jesus Christ and freed of the burden of being perfect frees us up to say things with humility like, thanks for bringing that to my attention. I'm going to definitely pray about that. I didn't realize I was doing that. Or, you're right, I I could have done that better. I I shouldn't have said that, I'm sorry. Or, Or, I'm sorry, I'm going to do my best with the Lord's help to not do that again. so application we should allow criticism to grow us instead of crushing us we should allow criticism to grow us instead of crushing us Now, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here I, I am a recovering perfectionist is what I like to say I uh, struggle with it. There's a fine line between excellence and perfectionism, and I struggle with where that line is. And, and uh, early in my ministry, I, I didn't handle criticism well. I didn't respond well to it. And I still sometimes don't respond well. I'm still working on trying to uh, respond in a, in a Christ-like manner. But uh, I've given you a reference there, Proverbs 19.20. I want to encourage you to write it down, memorize it, post it around your house if you struggle with criticism because this proverb tells us that wise godly people demonstrate humility by embracing criticism and that starts with knowing who you are in Christ it starts with knowing I'm nowhere near perfect anyway. So any criticism that somebody gives me is just confirming what Jesus already said about me. And, and I'm still growing. And so the rest of the proverb, it says, listen to advice and accept instruction that we may gain wisdom in the future. So, so, so the proverb says, if you embrace it and learn from it, you will grow wiser. And that's good. Now, justification doesn't give us permission to dismiss criticism. Instead, it frees us up to learn from it. Because the cross of Jesus Christ has said the worst things anybody could ever say about you or me. The cross says that apart from Christ, we are sinful, selfish, rebellious, stubborn, and deserving of hell. So thus, if anybody, like your spouse, a friend, a coworker, says, Hey, you know, you talk too much. That's nothing compared to what Jesus said about me. <laughs> hey, you know, your, your car is really dirty. <sighs> yeah, you should see my soul before I was born again. <laughs> you know, you're kind of messy. You struggle with organization, don't you? Yeah, you should have seen how messy my soul was before I was born again and trusted Christ as my Savior. See how you can instantly segue from criticism to witnessing? <laughs> Hadn't thought about that until now. <laughs> Thus, whenever a person, another person, criticizes it's merely a speck of dust compared to the criticism the cross has put on us. It means that we can welcome criticism like the wise man in Proverbs so that we can become wiser and grow. So we should allow criticism to grow us instead of crushing us. Because in Christ, I'm acquitted. Guilty, but acquitted. Not because there was a mistrial, but because of Christ. Not because witnesses were coerced or paid off but because of Christ not because there is insufficient evidence but because of Christ so well thankfully the story of Richard Overton in his identity theft has a good ending a couple of weeks after the problem was discovered his bank restored the funds that were stolen from his checking account and his identity was recovered before he passed away last winter. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, your identity can be recovered by applying the biblical truths we just looked at in the scriptures. Maybe memorizing some of the verses that we looked up to get into your head and into your heart the truths of what Jesus says about you to replace the lies that the world says about you. A relationship with Jesus Christ provides a new identity so we can enjoy a new life. And if Jesus is not yet your Lord and Savior, I'd love to talk to you after the service about how you can get a new identity and a new life. He offers an acceptance the world never has and the world never will. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Carrie Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.